This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here, go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. And one of the ways we do that is bring to you experts in our industry that are doing things that you may not do now or might need to consider as you continue to progress in your career. And certainly the topic of captives has come up more and more over the course of the last six months. And I personally don't think that it's going to go anywhere anytime soon. I think that the purpose has changed a little bit in terms of where people might have been looking to use captives in the past versus where they're using them now. But we're going to get through all of that stuff when we talk with our guest today, Mr. Jared Beck from Risk Management Advisors. They have offices in Irvine and all over the U.S. They can service any state. So you 30,000 plus that download this podcast every month have a resource for questions about captives and a resource to help you help your clients if that's the direction they want to go. So without any further introduction, we want to welcome Mr. Jared Beck. What's going on, Jared? David, I'm doing fantastic. Excited to be here. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I mean, I live in Tampa, Florida, so there's that. We're dealing with everything that uh, goes along with Florida in the insurance marketplace. But funny enough, um, I don't think that it's really any different here than it ever has been, to be honest with you. I mean, we've I, I've been in the industry for 20 years, and it's been a hard market almost the entire time. Certainly, some of that's tongue-in-cheek, but the reality of the matter is, if you're going to do what I do in Florida, you better be wearing some Kevlar britches to do it. <laughs> that's right. Florida has always been an interesting place uh, to conduct business, specifically insurance business or, or be an insurance buyer. So, um yeah, your your experience. You're not alone in that that experience. So we have so, we have some we have some clients there that would agree with you. Yeah. So talk to me quick. You know, let's get through your background, and then I do want to spend the bulk of the time talking about captives as a solution and how agents can use introduce that conversation um, to their prospects and clients, and why that may make sense, and some things they should look for, maybe even in their existing book. Uh, to trigger them to think, you know what, this is getting big enough now. It's probably time for us to have that conversation because the people who listen to this podcast, by and large, are are working in that middle market arena. But that means so many different things to so many different people 
Some people think middle market accounts are 25,000 in premium all the way up to a million dollars plus in premium. So it runs the gamut, man. So before we get into all of that part of it, sort of talk about your background and how you got into the captive space that you're in today. Yeah, you bet. So I started about 20 years ago myself at Northwestern Mutual. So it was life insurance, financial planning, um, you know, tuck a up, you know, tuck a buck a day away, you know, strategies. And pretty quickly realized I wanted to deal on the business side of things. Um, right around that time, the the first dot-com crash happened. So, like, you know, people's I, I put money into college funds for folks and it, you know, tanks 40%. And you know, I'm getting these calls. And um, you know, I quickly realized that side of the the table wasn't for me and wanted to get into you know business planning. Um, so I went to a you know a firm out here in our area that specialized in those uh, you know you know financial planning strategies for business owners. Started doing you know defined benefit plans, retirement plans, non qualified deferred comp, business owner type strategies. And it was there that we stumbled across captive insurance companies. Um, me and my partner Wes, and you know. At first, we liked you know the the asset building aspect of it, but then as we looked at it, we're like, man, what a what a great creative different way for people to address their insurance problems. So we just saw it as this multifaceted tool that could you know check a lot of different boxes for you know for business owners and um, and their companies, and decided to go you know full freight into into that space. So that was two thousand four. And we co-founded Risk Management Advisors, um, and then you know, fast forward to today, we're you know, depending on whose list you look at, you know, top six, um, you know, top ten in the space uh, for captive insurance companies. Back then, it was you know a lot of builders and developers. It was the housing boom. You know, insurance market was very difficult. Uh, you know, from a general liability standpoint, um, but then over time, it's really just diversified and ballooned into you know really. Most any industry uh, where the companies are high performing um, and then looking to get again creative and aggressive, um, you know, with their with their risk management strategy, save some money on premiums and and you know build a build an insurance company asset. So you're in the captive space now. You know, I think that the first question a lot of people have when um, you know when I'm talking to them about captives and conversation is. Hey, do you know anywhere we can put our real estate investors and all their property schedules and everything? Because <laughs> that area is getting crushed, as as are the majority of the captives that I'm aware of in that space as well. But you know, talk talk a little bit about the types of coverage that you typically see people put into captives, and uh, specifically what it is that you guys specialize in. Yeah, you bet. So um, our primary specialty is single parent captives or pure captives which is a captive that is really set up to serve, you know, to write the insurance or serve the interests of, you know, one company or their family of companies. And that would be in comparison to like a group captive, where maybe you've got 10 or more business owners or insurance buyers coming together to form a group captive, you know, to you know, help create capacity, you know, at, at a group level. Both are really good. And we can talk about, you know, who goes where, but for our part, you know, I'd say 90% of our business is helping individual business owners kind of restructure, uh, you know, restructure their their stuff and setting up stuff for them individually. As far as lines of coverage, you know, depending on the industry, it, it could really be any. Um, very common is workers' comp. 
you know, companies that have high payroll, um, you know, if they're paying a million dollars or more in you know, traditional first dollar premium, uh, can be a good candidate for a workers' comp captive. You know, obviously, you know, if they've got their safety, you know, you want to have your safety programs in place, you know, doing a good job on the, the risk management side. But, you know, workers' comp is a good baseline bedrock line of coverage for, for any captive program. Now, we're dealing with hard market. I mean, you know this. So we've seen huge uptick in the number of general liability uh, captive programs that we're putting together. Um, auto. Uh, property to some limited degree. Um, we can you know get into the differences there. And then believe it or not, there's actually awesome stuff you can do with excess lines of, of coverage now that you know you could never do before uh, when I you know when I first got into the business. Some really exciting structures and programs around uh, excess lines of coverage because even that's diff- you know even that's expensive now, right? I'm sure you're seeing that with some of your uh, some of your people, the the primary gets more expensive, but the excess has also gotten to uh, you know some pretty nosebleed levels in premium. So there's some some good stuff I, there. I literally just had one come in where the excess and it's not um, the the primary is written on a two four two million per occurrence four million in the aggregate, and the primary was two excess the two four. <laughs> And it was double the primary. The the excess premium was double the primary premium. And it was an interesting class of business, uh, you know, higher hazard, but well, essentially it was, it was a very specialized medical staffing company, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there are things that could happen there. And it, it wasn't a, an account that would be big enough yet to, to consider moving into a captive or whatever. There's still guaranteed cost, but we're we're at a point where we're having to look at, okay, let let's see what kind of risk you can really take from a um, an active retention strategy standpoint so that you're on the hook for the first 25 or 50 grand, knowing that you better have your policies and procedures in place. But we're at a point now where risk sharing is going to have to happen for people to be insured at an affordable level. I feel anyhow, because if you want first dollar coverage across the board, you're going to pay through the nose to get it depending on class of business. So I say that because, you know, talk, talk for just a second, if you don't mind, what's the normal progression for somebody? Because I've always sort of advised people who get aggressive, right? You'll go to a, they'll go to a trade show and they'll hear somebody talk about captive insurance and they come back and all they want to hear is, Oh, what are you going to do to get me into a captive? Meanwhile, they're paying like 300, <laughs> 350,000 in premium. They didn't even have a return to work program until last year. You know, we could go right down the line of all the reasons they don't belong in it. So the first thing that that we usually advise is regardless of line of coverage, why would you want to go look at a captive when you don't even know that you can control what you've got when it's first dollar? Take a little bit bigger deductible or retention than what you're currently taking so you can see how much you really enjoy being on the hook for some of that risk. Then you can go from there to in, in stair step upward, ultimately ending in a captive. Plus, depending on what state you're in, there's rules and regs about how big your program could even be before you can go down that road. Or at least there is here for high deductible stuff as well. You can't even get a, 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 t- a typical high deductible program unless your premium's at a certain size in the state of Florida. So for the companies that are growing and they think that's where they want to end up, what's the normal progression look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So you, you have to set yourself up for success. So, you know, we we get those same calls. People are, you know, hey, my insurance premium is really expensive. You know, I, I need a captive. 
And, you know, maybe they're paying, you know, let's go back to a million dollars for the workers comp. That's outrageous. But then it's, well, what are your losses? Oh, they're a million three. And it's like, well, it's actually not expensive. You're actually getting a great deal. And, you know, to your point, you know, if you go set up a captive just to pay a dollar in only to pay a dollar 30 out, then, you know, your yeah. captive is going to be upside down and bankrupt before, you know, before you know it. So, you know, you really have to have the confidence that, you know, your losses are going to perform better than, you know, you know, better than average and, and certainly, you know, good enough to, to run a profit. So that's, that's piece number one. The other thing is, you know, captive doesn't necessarily just mean cheaper insurance, right? So when you're getting into the captive space, you're setting up an insurance company and, you know, depending on what type of program you set up, that's going to require a little seed money, a little, you know, capitalization. Um, and then there's setup costs for the captive. So it's really not necessarily even, you know, less expensive in the first year sometimes, but it's more of a long-term play where you're recouping underwriting profit over time and reducing your overall cost of risk. So, you know, again, same thing, we get the calls at, you know, two weeks before the renewal and, you know, they're dealing with a tough renewal and they think, you know, captive is going to be the, uh, you know, the silver bullet to solve <laughs> that, uh, you know, to solve that problem. And it's just, you know, it's not enough time and it's not the right mentality, you know, to, to approach the captive. It's really, again, more of a long-term strategy, you know, to reduce the overall cost of risk, put the underwriting profit back in your pocket in a, in a really tax efficient way. And so, again, that takes a, you know, a long-term, you know, mentality there. And then, you know, so if you feel like you've got those things, then, then the next thing to do is to, you know, go to your broker or go to your advisors and, you know, sit down and have a conversation about, I'm, I'm interested in a captive and first define, you know, what does captive mean to you? What are the reasons for, you know, for pursuing it? And then, you know, go through, you know, what we call either a preliminary feasibility study or feasibility study phase, where you're looking at the data, you're looking at the policies, company factors, exposure, et cetera, and then determining what would work, what wouldn't work. You know, I just, you know, just got off a call before there were a couple of things that would work really great in a captive for this particular, you know, insurance buyer. And then, but, you know, it wasn't the one thing they wanted to address. So, you know, I thought it looked great, but for their perspective, it was like, well, we can't address this, this one thing. Um, so, you know, it didn't make quite as much sense. So it's, it's got to come down to, Hey, can we address your specific needs, you know, with, with the captive? And then, you know, through that analysis, you say, all right, well, you know, if it makes sense, go, no, go. Do we want to, you know, do we want to set it up? And, you know, then if you do, then, you know, we would handle, you know, setting it up and managing it and then, you know, helping the client get the benefits for it. But it's, it's kind of having your internal house in order from a, you know, risk management perspective. And then building the you know insurance company to to benefit. So you mentioned it sort of just quickly in passing, but I, I want to ha- go back and have you talk a little bit about the tax benefits of a captive. I know that it's changed a little bit over recent years, but there were a lot of companies that I that I've run into in, in my career um, that I've called on where I find out they actually have an insurance program, but then they also have a captive in addition to that because it was a mechanism for them to be able to put away money for tax benefit. Is that still similar to the to the way that it was or how has that changed and what are the benefits 
to an, uh, a company to go down the captive road from a tax standpoint today, understanding why well, you may very well be a CPA. I don't, I don't know that for a fact. I'm not, so I'm not giving any kind of tax advice and I don't want anybody to misconstrue what we talk about as any kind of advice. So there's the risk management disclaimer, disclaimer on what's getting ready to happen. That's right. Yeah, no, I'm not a, I'm not a CPA or a tax attorney. So yes, this, uh, you know, disclosures aside does not constitute tax advice. Um, you know, that being said, we can discuss it at a, at a high level. Um, and insurance companies do, insurance companies and captives do get favorable tax treatment compared to other companies. So, and, and it's very rare that when you set up a captive that you completely exit the traditional market. You know, take workers' comp, for example. So, you know, you could say, hey, I want to take risk on my workers' comp, but you don't want to take all the risk. So you're always buying some level of high deductible or, or reinsurance to protect yourself from catastrophic losses. And then also you need, you know, for, you know, you need the state by state admitted carrier, um, you know, to, to properly you know, issue the workers comp policies. So you can't just say, hey, I'm going to set up a captive and then, you know, self-insure all of my workers comp. You still have to partner with a carrier that can help you protect the catastrophic and then get you into the states. So a very common structure would be take a high deductible policy. You know, let's say you go from zero to half million dollars in retention, but then instead of just self-insuring it, you would set up the captive and they would take, the captive would take the half million dollar retention. The benefit of that being if it's properly structured, the insured is going to pay the premium over and then take an expense or take a deduction just like they do for regular insurance. So getting the tax deduction on the front end, and then when the money comes into the insurance company, you know, we're like your company, my company, we take in a dollar, we pay staff, and then whatever's left over, we pay taxes on. Insurance companies work different. They take in a dollar, they pay the expenses, but then they can take whatever's left over and put it into reserves to pay future claims. So you get to accelerate the deduction for, you essentially accelerate the deduction for future losses. And then you get to earn investment income and and you know grow the asset base with you know the pre-tax value as opposed to the after-tax. You know, I'm sure you've read or heard about you know Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway reports. He talks extensively about that, right? About the ability to use float, you know, to in, to invest because he's got money sitting in reserves uh, to pay potential claims, whereas other companies, you know, just regular companies don't don't have that advantage. So that's the the general tax benefit there. And, you know, Frank, you know, captives, it used to be a thing that only Fortune 500 companies, publicly traded companies would do. Um, it's trickled down to the middle markets. But, you know, that that preferable tax treatment has always been a motivating factor. Uh, the, the key thing with getting into a captive, and I'm sure you observe some of this, is it can't be the only reason or the primary reason. At the end of the day, insurance companies are you know, risk management tools, first and foremost, and, you know, you need to use them that way. There was a lot of people that would just set them up. You know, they weren't too interested in the insurance. Uh, some of the risks were, you know, relatively esoteric. And, you know, they were just looking to put away large premium dollars and, and take a deduction. Um, and that that's the type of strategy you, know, you probably need to stay away from. So that's good segue. You know, I think that you've probably seen, I, I suspect you've probably seen captives that have worked really well and captives that haven't worked so well. What are the common mistakes that you see that cause captives not to work 
the way that they should. Yeah. So the, the mistakes people make, one thing is taking on too much too fast. So, you know, middle market companies, they can, they can develop relatively quickly these days, right? You know, people, oh, know yeah. how to, people know how to scale businesses and you can very quickly go from, you know, working with your local, you know, the guy you met at your first networking meeting or, or you know, whatever the, you know, the local guy to, you know, all of a sudden having, you know, much more sophisticated insurance needs that, you know, then maybe you've outgrown that, you know, that, that person. Right. Um, and then, so now you've got all these things that you can potentially execute on in a captive. And the, the key thing is not to take on too much too quick. Cause you've got a growing business. And then, you know, if you say, Hey, I'm going to set up a captive and you can do, now you can do workers comp group medical, you know, excess lines, cyber, sometimes it can be overwhelming. And then, you know, you get it all set up and then, you know, it's, you know, you don't fully grasp what's going on or, or, you know, too much too fast. And then frustration can, you know, can ensue. Maybe it puts too much burden on, on the team. So we like to take things in a phased approach. It's like, all right, let's deal with the primary objective first. And then, Hey, here's a phase two and a phase three strategy that we can look forward to implementing down the road, but let's, let's, you know, let's bite it off in chunks and not distract from, you know, running your, your day-to-day business. So that's the key thing. Other issues that can be undercapitalizing. So we've seen, you know, we've seen some captives where they're writing earthquake insurance and they've gone in with the, you know, the regulatory minimum amount of dollars, regulatory minimum capital. And it's like, all right, first earthquake, this captive is going to be upside down. You haven't, you know, you haven't adequately capitalized. So there's, you know, getting in for the right amount of capital versus, you know, the regulatory minimum. And that comes back to good, you know, feasibility study work on the front end to make sure you've got the right amount of money in there to support the program. So. Well, it's it's no different than people who buy state minimums on auto because they think they're saving money when really they're putting themselves at much greater risk by doing that. Underfunding a captive, even though the mechanics of it aren't the same, it's the same general concept. And I, I wonder, I mean, I would think the collateral or not necessarily just the collateral, but what you have to have to see the captive, the, the money to fund it on the front end, that's probably one thing that would drive a lot of businesses to, to try and maybe make it like an industry group captive or something along those lines where multiple companies can help to seed it as opposed to one having to, to come up with all the finances to do that. You know, you had said earlier, you think individual companies, you know, dealing with individual business owners or, or decision makers at companies is is the best way to do that, or it's, it's the most popular way. You know, what are the, I, I got to imagine that there's a lot more to deal with when you're bringing multiple entities in and having them own a captive together, especially when money's involved. And then I'm sure, you know, you're going to have that one company that has the shock loss that blows it up and what's that dynamic look like? You know, if you're going to start, a, if you're going to start a captive, because I know how the people who listen to us think half of them are thinking about, Oh, I've got a client that would be perfect for this. Another half of them are thinking, Oh man, I could get all the roofers in Missouri to join a captive. <laughs> if I just put one together when, and I shouldn't say half, but 33 and a third, 33 and a third, the other 33 and a third probably turned it off 10 minutes ago. Cause we're already talking way <laughs> above their head. They have no idea you know, that this is something valuable that might help them down the road. So, you know, why, 
what are the challenges of having multiple entities versus just having it be belong to a single business? Yeah, so there's definitely situations where a group captive is, is going to work better. So if you've got those insurance buyers that are in that, you know, let's say GL, Comp, and Auto together, and they're in that 300,000 to maybe, you know, a million collectively between those three lines of coverage, group captive could be a really, really great alternative because, you know, at those premium levels, as you were alluding to earlier, you know, maybe it doesn't justify setting up a individual captive, you know, to, you know, take on that much risk and, and cover those three lines of coverage, not quite feasible, but a group captive you could join in would be, yeah, much less, you know, collateral or capitalization to get in and then, and then be able to get some premium stability or savings and some underwriting profit out of the group. And that's, that's kind of the size insurance buyer that the group captives are, are indicated for. Things to be aware of is the loss ratios and the performance on these things, David, has actually gotten a lot better over the years. Uh, there, there used to be problems where like bad insurance buyers, you know, the good ended up subsidizing the bad, right? There would be a bunch of bad actors in there having bad claims. And then the good guys, all their money went to cover their losses. And then everybody's, you know, collateral went up or the captive would shut down. Um, you know, that used to be a big problem, you know, back when I first got into the business. Well, you, you also uh, just described a poorly run PEO because that's the same thing, right? It's, yeah, for sure. You know, you, you get a PEO that's got a million dollar deductible per occurrence with no annual aggregates, essentially they're self-insured, but then you have the gunslingers out there selling deals left and right to high mod business. And meanwhile, they come in, they blow up all of the claims inside the deductible layer. Meanwhile, all of this beautiful white collar business that's a lower rate sitting over here and doing their best to subsidize. And the next thing you know, you've it's got good. a horrible loss ratio. You're going to have to pony up a lot more collateral at renewal. Um, you know, it, it's just it's one thing after the other that gets affected. It's massive chain reaction. Yeah, exactly. And that that phenomenon, you know, can still, but used to happen all the time in the group captives. And, you know, now what I tell brokers is, you know, definitely, you know, look at the group captives that are out there, see if they make sense for your client that fit in that range that I described, but be ready for a very thorough underwriting, you know, process. Cause these captives, they want to, they want to admit best in class, you know, guys that are doing it better than their competitors and stand to contribute to the pool positively, um, you know, so that everybody can get the get the benefits that they're looking for. Um, and there's there's a lot of good ones out there. And I think people should have that in their repertoire. And so that can definitely make sense. If you're trying to start one from scratch, it's, you know, and, and I think you're right, David, you probably got a segment of your audience is like, okay, here we go. I got these guys, we're gonna, we're gonna get this set up. Um, it is key. So when I talk to the underwriters, usually want to have $2 million ish of collective premium to get that carrier partner interested in, in partnering with you or having that discussion about setting up a captive program, either for your group or your agency. Um, and, you know, everybody's mileage will vary depending on industry, et cetera, but that's a good, good rule of thumb. Um, and the, and the key thing is that you do have control over, over the book, because at the end of the day, you do need enough people swimming in the same direction and being willing to enter in and execute, um, you know, at, at some common renewal date to, to get the thing off the ground. And that's that's where I see most of the programs fail is because, you know, two folks will be fired up on it. And then, 
three or a maybe, and then two or a no, and then, you know, someone backs out and then you just, you don't have that critical mass anymore. So, you know, kind of getting that collective consensus is, is a key deal. If you're going to, if you're going to fire one up from scratch. So speaking of firing one up from scratch, what's the time frame? Like what, what's a realistic time frame? If, if I say, you know what, captives a strategy for me. I think that it makes sense for me to get my client to go down this road. I'm going to start today. You know, how much, how much runway do I have to have? You said tongue in cheek a couple of weeks before renewal, people, you know, <laughs> think, Oh, captive may be an option. You and I both know that's not tongue in cheek. That crap happens in real life every day. Oh, yeah. You know, you can't put something, you know, understanding even the experts who are doing this, Captives can be complex, but complex to explain to the end user of it, the end of the person who actually owns it. I have to believe you have there, there's enough, there needs to be enough time for you to have a runway just for the educational piece, let alone everything else. But you got to have a lot of information. And that's probably another follow up to this. Number one, lead time. And number two, like what what are the basics as far as the information you need to even begin to do a feasibility study? Because I know that agents are going to say they have a hard enough time getting loss runs for a regular renewal. How do you expect me to get audited financials and all of this other stuff that, that you would need to put a, a do a feasibility study on a captive? So I'd be interested in just the basics that you would need so that they can know if it even makes sense to push to go further. Yeah, the nice thing is there's so many domiciles now that want captive business. And then there's, you know, and captive managers have gotten better or most at, you know, knowing how to structure submissions so that they'll get speedy approval. And by speedy, I mean, you know, once you say go, I want to set up the captive, you know, that could be, you know, let's call it five to eight weeks, which is, you know, which is pretty good. It's much faster than it, than it used to be. Um, and some circumstances, depending on how much tailwinds you get, could be faster. So the actual setup is, is not an overly long process. Um, that education component, right? The, the planning, the, you know, what do we want to accomplish? What are our goals and objectives? And then, you know, seeing if that can work, that that's the piece that does take the time depending on, you know, depending on what you want to do. And so what we've started doing, you know, it used to be you had to do what's called a feasibility study and you would collect a ton of data and the client would end up you know, pinning one or multiple checks to the actuary, the attorneys, consultants, you know, et cetera, to get, you know, this full-blown analysis, which was both timely and then, you know, tough from a data collection standpoint. And what we've started doing is really more of a preliminary feasibility study. So if we're working with a broker and it's his client with the basic information that they would have in a, in a file, you know, we can sit down and say, you know, hey, I don't have exact numbers for you. Or, you know, we can't pencil this out to a T, but here's what this would look like. You know, here's what we've, you know, here's what we've seen in other cases. Here's what we know carriers are willing to participate in. Um, you know, here's what, you know, our actuaries say, you know, we have internal rating models where you can rate out certain lines of coverage, you know, cyber, so on and so forth. And you can get back with a very reasonable indication or sketch of, you know, what a program might look like and then see if there's traction there with, with the client. And then if there is, then you can dig in on the much, you know, more in-depth underwriting or, or info request. And then, 
you know, as far as audit financial statements, things like that, you know, you, you don't even have to get there until you go into, you know, maybe underwriting with a reinsurer or, or the formation stage. So that's been one of the nice developments over the years is, you know, just, hey, how can we, you know, what is feasible, what is execute, you know, what somebody can execute on back to them quicker, you know, to keep the, you know, keep the momentum going. But again, it can vary, you know, it just varies based on what, you know, what you want to do, right? So if you're, you know, if you're talking about wanting to general liability workers comp, or you need to partner with a carrier, you need to go out and quote reinsurance, um, then, you know, yeah, you want to be starting 120 days, you know, just for the underwriting portion. So then your education is probably coming, you know, a month before that. So, you, you know, you want that, you know, six to seven month runway on something like that. Um, if it's something, somebody's coming in for a very specific thing, um, you know, I talked about that excess lines, you know, mm -hmm. captive strategy, you know, that can be turned around a lot quicker because it's very specific. You, you know, you jump right into it and, you know, you can get that done in a, in a, in a tighter, in a tighter window. So it just, just depends on what you're wanting to accomplish, but yeah, you definitely want to factor in education phase, structuring phase, and then implementation. So what does it look like on your side? Do you guys have to go through every year and, you know, I'm sure you're working deals with reinsurers left and right, but is it a deal by deal basis? Do they give you a certain amount of capacity? You know, you have the ability to operate up to, or, you know, is it every year you're having to start over from scratch, figuring out who's going to be the players, who's not going to be the players. Cause I could think that could get really, really time consuming at some point as well. Yeah. We always try to keep a pulse on who the carriers are, you know, just, just like any, Sort of, you know, if you're specializing in a space, you got to know who the carriers are that are interested in in playing ball, you know, with you. So that's kind of on the awareness for new captive prospects coming in. Once you get somebody set up, it's it's really ideal to set up a long term partnership, especially on the especially on the comp and the GL, you know, where there's a high you know high level of claims handling, risk management. You know, if you can settle in with a nice carrier partner for a period of years. Then, you know, I mean, the whole point of captive is to optimize, you know, premium spend, but it's also to, you know, you develop partnerships. Everybody's interests are aligned, right? Everybody wants the losses low, the underwriting profits high, and it becomes less about price and more about quality. You know, that's, you know, that's what we strive for with a lot, you know, a lot of our clients on the front end. Yeah. Keeping track of, you know, whose appetites are, you know, whose appetites are what that's always a uh, moving target. And, you know, with the capacity issues these days, uh, there seems to be less and less targets, but we, we, we still get it done. One more question, I think, then I think we will have beat this horse to death for the average agent on the street. But, you know, I think that a lot of times when people hear captive, they think blank slate and you have to create everything from absolute scratch. So what about the coverage forms, man? How do you decide what coverages you're going to offer, what sublimits, what extensions, and all of that stuff? I mean, are you trying to mirror what a, a traditional program would look like to the best of your ability? Is it more of an a la carte thing where every time you have an engagement, you're sort of customizing it to that unique company's needs, which would which also makes sense? I'm just, I, I know what the average insurance policy looks like in terms of number of pages. And I know, you know, that we're bound to stay inside the guidelines of what 
the state approves in terms of ISO forms and all of that. So what are the, what rules do you have to, to, to adhere to and what, and what's it like actually having to put a policy form together to provide the coverage? So sometimes we get to piggyback off the, the carrier's policy, right? So if, uh, you know, we've got, so in some arrangements, the captive will actually reinsure a, what's called a fronting carrier, which is like mm-hmm. a, just a traditional carrier issuing the policy. And then so we're using their policy forms. Um, and the captive is just acting as a reinsurer. That's the way the group captives work. Carriers issuing the policy, the group captive is just paying losses. So in, in that setting, you're using the carrier forms. If it's an instance where, you know, clients are going to do their own coverage, what we've seen a lot is cyber. You know, the cyber market is limited, it's expensive. So, you know, a lot of our clients are like, hey, why don't I just do this myself? And there they leverage one of the big benefits of captives, which is you can manuscript your own forms. And by manuscripting, you know, it's not them manuscripting, but it's them telling us what they want. And then we go out and, and you know, and manuscript it, make sure it covers all the stuff that they want to cover. So ironically, a lot of captive policies are not as long as traditional policies because we're not as busy excluding everything. Right. We're, we're coming back in and we're saying, hey, we want to offer more broad coverage. We want to protect the insured on a more broad basis, you know, for the, for the same or, or less premium. And so, you know, you don't need all the pages of exclusions. You just need to define what it is you want to cover and then a more limited set of, you know, sort of standard exclusions. So, um, yeah, we have a team that handles that. We have a claims and policy management team um, that, you know, that works on those. And then obviously, you know, insurance counsel that, you know, that reviews and, and helps us craft that stuff. But that's, you know, that's part of what we do as the captive manager is to, you know, policy forms, claim software, claim systems, claims handlers, um, you know, accounting, bookkeeping, all the financial record keeping, the regulatory interface. It's handling all those aspects of an insurance company so that the client gets the benefit, you know, without it distracting too much from what they do best. And you said it really quick. Um, I want to just make sure we clear this up too. As far as claims handling goes, how does all that work, right? I mean, is the captive the one who picks their own TPA? Does the reinsurer have any say? Is it the reinsurer's TP, you know, claims handling that we use? What what does that look like? Yeah, that depends. So if you're using a fronting carrier or, you know, high deductible partner, then, you know, you're probably limited to their list of approved third-party administrators. If it's a coverage that you're writing direct, there is no fronting carrier. There's no, it's just, you're writing it out of your captive. Again, come back to the cyber. Then we have a claims handling team here that can help people, you know, adjudicate their, their claims that would come down the road. And then, you know, we've got other settings, uh, you know, mentioned PEO. So we have a large PEO. Um, they're actually self-insured for workers' comp in the state they're in. They use the captive to hold all the all the premiums and the reserves, and you know they pick their own TPA. So and they have that they have that flexibility. So again, depends on the engagement, the line of coverage. But so either you're using the carrier required TPA, leveraging our in-house services, or you know if you're fortunate enough, you can you can select your own. What have we missed, man? We've been going for 45 minutes almost. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would want to get out to let people know about captives or at least increase awareness about it? And one thing I do want to make sure that we talk about is how do they find you, get a hold of you, go ahead and lay it out there while we're going down this road. Yeah, you bet. Uh, we touched on it a little bit, but uh, you know, for your 
you know, your, your excess lines of coverage that you wouldn't typically think about as a, as a captive opportunity. If you've got somebody, you know, 300,000 and above, or, you know, an excess layer, there's, there's a captive solution there that, that could work and be very attractive. Everybody usually thinks of captives as a, as a casualty tool, PNC, which they definitely are, but there's also a ton of captives being formed and a ton of money to be saved on the medical benefits side. If you have any, uh, anybody in your audience is operating in that space, we've had a ton of success with, uh, you know, self-funding and, and captives on, on the benefits side. And then, you know, your other hard market items, I mean, your GLs and your auto, you know, there's, there's good captive solutions out there for that. So I think those would be the, those are the things I'd be thinking about if I was out there, you know, looking at my book of business or future, you know, books of business. That's the thing is there's a lot of brokers out there not talking about this stuff. And if you aren't, you probably should be. Because if you don't, somebody else will, and you know your your client will be taking meetings with uh, you know with other folks. So um, so definitely get out there and at least bring it at least bring it up. Yeah, and I mean that that's a fair point. So I want I do I want to wrap up with this. I think you know from what I've processed over the course of the last few minutes of us talking, this is exactly the wheelhouse where we play specifically in my agency, but also. You know, for those of you who've never understood why I think it makes sense to call on people a month after they renewed, if you still don't know that after listening to this, then you probably are never going to understand that concept because he already told you seven months, eight months lead time, you're already bumping up against the renewal time. So you may as well hit them a month after renewal. And guess what? an easy time to create doubt because all you literally have to ask is just out of curiosity, how did your renewal go? When your agent came and spoke to you, what was the captive solution they offered knowing the market's continuously hardening? They're not going to have offered one. Very, very rarely will they. So you can at least pique the interest. And I suspect the reason the question's not asked is because people are afraid to ask it because they don't feel like they know enough about it. We just spent almost an hour giving you a baseline education and some things you can use as talking points to just open opportunities. All you have to do is ask the question. When they respond, your response is really simple. Well, I think it would make a lot of sense to possibly look at what it would take to do a feasibility study so that we have plenty of time leading into next year's renewal to see if we have the ability to reduce your total cost of risk by introducing a captive solution. Is that something you would be interested in? And if they say yes, now you've already got the ball rolling with plenty of time to do it. Don't wait till two weeks before renewal because you're going to get skipped over and told to go reach out to them after renewal and start you know, further out next time. You have plenty of opportunity to do that. So if you look at your own book of business, it should be a, a normal conversation. But if you're looking at your prospects, go ahead and sort your prospects based on size and the stuff that's at the top of the heap probably has enough premium that this is a valid discussion for you to be having. All you have to do is introduce the concept. I'm pretty confident that if you do that, Jared and his team know enough about what needs to happen on the back end that they can take it from there. But if you don't ask that question and somebody else does, you're really going to wish you had taken the time to ask the question. We don't gain anything at all in life by allowing ourselves to remain comfortable Push yourself in your boundaries, ask the questions other people aren't asking, and you'll live like nobody else lives because you'll make more money than they do because you did what you needed to do. Jared, I thank you today. Jared's website for riskmanagementadvisors.com is 
dot R I S K M G M T advisors spelled out.com. You can find him from there. And we'll also have some contact information in the show notes when this episode's released. Thanks for taking time to jump on the, the show with me today, my friend. And we look forward to hearing about captives and all of the success the power producers listeners have achieved from having you on today. Take care. Awesome. Thanks for having me, David. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>